The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. So how did you make the transition into, into sessions? Because it's not something where you can't just decide, okay, I'm a road guy, and I'm all of a sudden, I'm going to have a bunch of accounts that are going to be calling me. So right. how did you make the transition? Well, um, you know, a, a, a couple years, you know, before I got like the Josh gig, you know, the goal was just like to just have a gig, you know. And then I got Josh's gig and, and I was pretty um, wrapped up in that for the first couple years. And, and, and about my, my, you know, third year there was when I kind of started going like, okay, I kind of feel like I have a lid on this thing. Like that's, I feel like I've got job security, uh, you know. I should start playing some other music with some other people, you know. And, and that may sound funny to some people, but when I first got hired with Josh, I mean, I, I probably didn't play another gig for anybody other than maybe a random songwriter night with somebody for those first couple years because I was so, well, one, Josh was super busy. He was hitting a peak in his career and he was super busy. And, and uh, I was just so concerned with doing a good job there that the thought of like being home and like having other things to tend to or learning other people's music just kind of was, was beyond my, you know, 22 year old brain at the time. So, uh, but I got to a point, I was like, man, I, I, maybe I should start doing some other stuff, you know? And I remember talking to my parents and they were like, well, you know, if you wanted to do, if studio work interested you, like, you know, like your dad does, and they were like, you know, you could probably end up doing that at some point, but you know, it's a different thing. It's a different skill set. You know, it's not that those guys are better. It's just a different muscle, you know? And um, so at that point, I just kind of, that was when I first started, I guess you'd say like networking. I kind of started to just go around to shows in town, songwriting nights, try to meet other people. And uh, I slowly started playing gigs around town and I was young and so, you know, I was, I was getting a lot of calls suddenly to go do like these showcases, you know, for, and it, you know, if anyone's not, you know, familiar in Nashville, you know, it, one of the things we used to do a long time ago was like, you know, if an artist was trying to get a record deal, they would have a, they'd book a room out and at 5.30, everyone from the labels got invited and they'd come over and watch the showcase. And then they decided, you get a record deal. But most of the time they said, no, we don't get it. <laughs> we pass. And uh, so I started doing those. And through those, again, I can trace it all back to one thing. I had played a showcase for a girl named Megan James that wrote for Warner Brothers and was getting pitched to Warner Brothers label as an artist. I did a showcase and um, the band at the time, so my, it was myself, um, Charlie Worsham was the acoustic guitar player who now has a record deal and you know is kind of famous right. in his own right. And the rhythm section was a guy named Steve Sinatra on drums and a guy named um, uh, uh, Matt, and uh, I'm totally blanking on his last name, but they're the rhythm section for Hunter Hayes now, have been for the last five years, and uh, Matt Utterbeck. And um, so guys that all kind of went on to do good things, it was a really good band, and they were all my age, and it was fun and everything. And Megan didn't get a record deal, and so she got offered a publishing deal with a different company and went there. And she called me up out of the blue and said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm moving, you know, publishing companies and I want to mix up some things with how I'm doing my demos. I've been, I used all the same guys for three years at Warner Brothers and I just kind of want to mix some things up. She's like, do you play sessions? Would you want to come? 
And I was like, yeah, you know, I would love to thank you, you know. And so I did my first session for like a publisher um, for EMI, Megan James at Station West. And I can I could tell you every band guy, all the dudes, and I walked in and I knew who all of them were, you know, from reading their names and liner notes and stuff or my parents talking about them. I knew who every person was and of course they didn't know me. And man, you know, from that one session, it was like, one of the co-writers from that session liked me and hired me on one of their sessions coming up. And then, you know, I met a couple other players and then I kept doing Megan's sessions. From then on out, I mean, I think to this day, I've probably done every session Megan's ever had since then. And it's like, she was really loyal to me, liked me and, you know, I'd meet a bass player guy and then he might throw something out. But I mean, you're talking about small steps. I mean, it's not a thing that like happens like wildfire. It, um, you know, and you know, an artist, even if you lock down a quote unquote an account, one songwriter, they're gonna dim, do a demo session every six weeks, maybe, you know, and then you do that demo session and you wait two months for your $180 check or whatever it is, you know, so it didn't move fast. But the point is, is that seed kind of started planting while I was still out with Josh. And then a couple years into that, I was doing a fair amount of work in town and I was still doing Josh's gig and I was turning down some things while I would be gone. I had a couple guys that I really respected, uh, Russ Paul being one of them, the, the steel player that kind of got in my ear and said, hey man, you could do this full time. Like you could really, you could, you know, you've got a thing that you do and you could really do this full time if you'll stay here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and it, you know, and there's, man, at that time, I was on a salary with Josh, you know, it was a real steady income and it was a great thing. And man, there's never a good time to throw away, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, even if, even if you were already making $80,000 a year playing sessions, which I was not, but even if you were, it's still not a good time to call your other $80,000 a year thing and say, hey, whew, see ya, you know. So it was scary, but I had enough guys that said like I could, I could, you know, could do it if I tried. And so I did. I gave Josh my, my notice and found him, helped find him a replacement. I, I gave him a really long notice. I wanted to make sure that transition was great because he was always good to me. And, uh, you know, that was 2000, no, 2000, yeah, 2011. I was, I, I, when I quit that gig, or 2010 maybe, and um, that's when I just stayed in, I just refused to, to take a full-time road gig, you know, and I got called about a few other things, and, cause, you know, and uh, I just had to turn them down, even though the money was real tempting, and I mean, I was not making a lot of money doing sessions, I, you know, I was barely scraping by, but I, I had had so many guys just tell me, like, man, give it a year, year and a half. Like, you know, if you're still, you know, just dying by then, well, like, then maybe we'll rethink some things, but like, you gotta hang in here. You know, they're like, three months isn't gonna do it. Six months isn't gonna do it. You know, you have to be around. You have to be there to take the last minute calls. Cause when you're the new guy, so much of your work is like two days from now and they go, hey, you know, remember for me, you know, it's, hey, Tom Bukovac just bailed, like for our demo session, can we do this, you know, and, um, or, you know, Rob McNally had a record come up. Can we, and you, you know, and I would, you know, go do it. Sometimes it was the day before, you know, and um, 
those being able to answer those calls as opposed to being like, sorry, I'm in Iowa, you know, right. were the in you know, in hindsight were the things that got me in some of the doors that would ultimately, you know, lead me to, you know, really having a, a, a true full time gig at it and doing well for myself with it and everything. Um but yeah, man, the first first year and a half, I mean, I was doing sessions, but it was really not enough to to like live off of and as we talked about the the way that the things are structured checks are they come so sporadically so the other thing while i was refusing to take a full-time road gig that first year and a half man i i subbed i must have gone out and done sub stints with acts 10 times you know it's like hey the band perry needs a guitar player to fill in because their guy's getting married this weekend so i'd go out with the band i'd learn their whole set kind of like we talked about with josh like i would just absorb it learn it in and out and go out and do do three nights with the band Perry, filling in for their guy. And Sarah Evans, you know, Sarah Evans needs a guy for, you know, a month or whatever. You know, guitar was having a baby. It's like, okay, and I would go do that. And but I was always, you know, I never would commit to being the full time thing where that had to be my priority. You know, so that way, if sessions came up or something, I could still try to jump on them. But a lot of those sub gigs, man, helped keep the lights on for me in that first year. And you know, that and just every songwriter. Every show at the basement, local club gig, every every you know seventy five dollar thing I could do, um, I did in that you know that period of time. And slowly the session thing just kept. It's like roots spreading, you know. It just kind of kept getting more and more and more and more and more until all of a sudden you look up one day and you go, "Man, I did a session every day last month," or you know, or you know at least one. And then it's like, "Wow, man, I have like." My week this week is like all like duh, like I'm doing like two sessions a day this week, you know, and it uh, kind of just sneaks up on you in that way, you know. But I I really can trace it all back to one session. I mean, that Megan James session at Station West was, you know, like I said, I remember I still work with that engineer. I still work with every player that was on that session to this day, you know, and um, and uh, you know, call them for work, and they've all called me for work, and a lot of the writers on that first session even too that I still know and remember and have relationships with. Slowly but surely. It definitely does not happen quick. That's the thing I try to stress to guys. Is, um, and I, I've, I have had this year particularly a lot of guys say, you know, how do you, I really want to start doing sessions. And it's like, well, I can't tell you for sure, like, do this and this will get you work. But I can tell you that it will not happen fast. It does not matter. It doesn't matter what instrument you're on. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Even if you're a great player and a super like, like even if you have everything going for you, it will not happen fast. You know, it's just it's a slow process, and you got to just kind of hang in there, and you know, be willing to jump. You know, always answer the phone. I remember reading an article with Vince Gill where he said, "I just said yes to everything." That's kind of the way. <laughs> so at least it was the way for me. You know, so. So in the studio, I'm sure you've gotten to play with a lot of a lot of heroes of yours and yes. people that you had, you know, again, like you said earlier, you would, you know, looked at the liner notes and all of a sudden you were getting to play with some of these guys. Who are some of your, you know, maybe some favorite stories or recollections of, of heroes that you've gotten to play with? Um, man, gosh, there's a lot. Um, you know, I equate what I do every day to like, you know, it's like it's a sports analogy. It's like imagine you grew up a Yankees fan your whole life. And then one day you get drafted to go play for the Yankees. But then all the same dudes that you grew up watching were still on the team. You know, that's, that's honestly how I feel uh, many days. Um, 
guys like JT Cornfloss, Brent Mason, I mean, those guys, I, you know, I remember reading album covers and just thinking, like, I know it sounds stupid, but like, wonder what JT looks like, you know, stuff. I and mean, this was, you know, before the internet when you could Google a picture of somebody, right. you know, that kind of stuff. And weird that, you know, just, you know, like, man, I wonder, wonder what kind of gear they use, wonder what guitar they play, or wonder what they did for this. And, um, you know, Brent was always pretty accessible, and he played the, you could go see Brent play with the, the players, and you know he was doing things and releasing solo albums, and there were you know VHS tapes and stuff. But uh, and definitely the first time I worked with Brent Mason, that was absolutely a, a bucket list thing, and you know totally. Um, but I, but I definitely remember playing with JT. He was just such a hero and such an influence on on my playing. I mean, I joke about it with him to this day, you know, and just say like, man, you ever hear me play and think like, man, that's my lick. Yeah, Cause I just, you know, just such a, such a fan, such a student. But I remember definitely getting to meet him and uh, play with him. Cause the first time I'd ever met him or even seen him was playing with him, you know? And, uh, and that was really special day and just trying to absorb, just remember watching what he did, you know, just trying to see how he worked and see how he thought and, you know, and watch, you know, watch the things he did and uh, just, and he's, to this day, I mean, I, I count him as a friend now, but he's just been so gracious to me from the first day he met me. Just so kind, so welcoming, you know, just just, just the greatest guy. He's he's always been good. I, I'm trying to think of uh, of stories. Um, I would imagine it'd be intimidating, you know, like especially with Brent Mason, especially if, if you were asked to pick up a Telecaster or something with. Brent oh Mason. man, yeah. Well, I you know I. <laughs> I just wouldn't. I mean, there's a, you know, and that is something I do to this day, I mean, not to get off topic, but um, guys that I work with that, that I have been such a student of their guitar playing, there are certain things that, that I know it's like, there's no point in me trying to, it, JT's the same way. I, I never would play a Telecaster if I'm on a session with JT. It, it's just pointless. It's, so, so what would you do? If he's playing a telly, what, what would you do to complement what he was well, doing? Well, you know, depending on the part or something, you know, I might play, I might, if it's a, you know, rocking thing, I might play a, a Les Paul or something with humbuckers, or I might play a baritone track, or I might play a 12, I might do something that's a little more color if he's doing kind of a lot of the heavy lifting with the telly sound or whatever, you know, it's like, and it's the same with Brent. And, and that's not to call them one trick ponies at all, because they are certainly capable of doing other things, but just to me in my mind, it's like, well, if I play telly, it's just going to be me trying to sound like JT. So yeah. <laughs> just let JT do that, and I'll do this. And yeah, they, I mean, they're both. All the guys are so capable. But it's the same way with dudes that are, you know, I I am a huge fan of Rob McNelly's guitar playing, and and he's played on so many great records. And his, I just adore his slide playing. And you know, I like playing slide. I enjoy it. And you know, but um, if he's around, I'm like, hey, Rob, you should play slide. I'll say you should play slide on this because I just. I think it's so great. I'm not gonna. T I'm not gonna play slide in front of Rob. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll let him do yeah. his thing. And uh, and of course, you know, all those guys are so gracious. If I said that to them, they they get embarrassed. You know, they're but they're they're super kind. Uh, but yeah, with Brent, it's it's definitely that way. It's it's way with all those guys, man. I remember the first time I got to work with you know like Greg Morrow on drums and just being like, I want it to feel like. I want Greg Morrow to think I have good pocket, you know, and you know all you know any of those guys. Or when you work with Brian Sutton playing acoustic, you know, bluegrass guitar player of the year, however many years, it's like right. 
you want Brian to think you're, you know, you want those guys to, to respect you, to think you're worthy of being there, you know. Um, uh, but I, I will say there, there is, there's a couple good stories. One, and, and unfortunately they're both kind of hard knock stories, but, you know, not everybody's patient with you when you're the new guy, you know. To them it's just another day at the office, and if you're slowing up the session and, you know, or if you're sticking out, or even if they think you have too many opinions, it's can you can get vibed out pretty hard. And um, we had a I had a session one time, and um, we did the track, and my first part felt good, so I, I said I'm gonna do a second part, and uh, got geared up, and the, this particular bass player was gonna replay his so we get geared up and they go to start the song and um i I start playing the intro and i realize that they haven't put my second guitar part into the headphones yet so i can't hear myself um and i I really you know need to hear myself so i kind of just you know in into the you know and 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 you know they stop the track and i was like hey guys i'm so sorry I, i can't I can't hear my second guitar part. I need, I need, you know, bring it up or whatever. And this bass player stepped on the talkback, and and uh, I just heard. I didn't know. Who, I just heard the talkback mic open up in my cans, and I heard somebody go, "Don't ever effing do that again." And I and I looked like through the glass, and this bass player guy's just staring at me. And I mean, this <laughs> guy's like playing a lot of ra- like a lot of big. Ra- I was horrified, you know. And now. That guy, that guy has a buddy, and I know he's just crotchety. Like he, you know, he's just one of those things. But and he, he loves me, and we've talked about that story, and we laugh, and I give him a hard time over it. But in that moment, I was just some kid that was messing up his vibe. You know, there was no respect level there. It wasn't. I was not a peer to him. It wasn't like a buddy saying, "Hey, sorry, can we hold up for a second? It was just some kid messing up his mojo, and he was not having it. You know, and uh, so you know. I had, uh, you know, for every hero I met, you know, that was really great to me. There's a handful that was not so great <laughs> to me, you know. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you go, you know, you learn and you go, oh, okay, I, I know how to handle that guy now or I won't. Because then it, it gets back to the politics of things and in the sand, kind of sandbox politics where you really have to be careful. It's not just about playing, but it's also about you know the vibe and interacting with other people, totally. and, and knowing and knowing how to interact with each each player and kind of what their thing is. Absolutely, man. Reading a room is so much of it, man. You know, knowing um, as, as silly as it may sound, it's like you know, they, I mean, there can't be too many alpha males on a session. I know that sounds funny to say, but it, it really is true. You know, everyone. Every player on the floor can't have an opinion on every single thing, or you'll never get anything recorded. You know, you just, you won't. Sometimes you just have to do what you're paid to do. Mm-hmm. You get out of the way, you know, particularly if you're not the session leader. I mean, you know, you, you have to just, you know, I lead a lot of sessions now. Um, I get asked to do that a, a lot. But if I'm not the leader, I, I, I try to hang back. And I mean, I will happily give my opinion if it's asked of me directly, but I'm not going to sit there and just throw out idea after idea the whole time. And you can go down so many rabbit holes with that kind of stuff. And it's ultimately not my gig. It's the session leader's job to kind of help direct, steer the ship, you know. Because you've already got the producer and you've already got the session leader. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, and possibly, you know, songwriter, artist, sometimes engineers have opinions, you know? Sometimes I mean, other label people. Oh man, yeah, at, on any given session, there can be five people in the room that I have no idea who any of them are, and they all keep saying stuff to us on the, <laughs> on the, on the talk back, you know? It's like, you're not the writer, you're not the artist, who are you? But they keep, you know, having ideas, you know? Um, what do you think about adding a little, uh, you know, a little 5K there on your... Oh. Yeah, that well, oh yeah. The, the, all the, I wish it was that direct. Okay. It's usually yeah. like, the choruses aren't big. Yeah. I know they're not yet, because it's only one part. And yeah. give, it, give it some time, we'll do, you know. We'll do be, some more overdubs. We'll do, it's going to get there, just trust us. In part three, Derek will show us some of his favorite gear and how he dials in his tones. That's the that's a pedal for sure that that has multi uses. You know that's on every one of my boards that I you know have. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone. TrueTone.com.